Hello, money makers and money savers. Welcome to the interview series, The Business of Business. I'm your host, Dustin Dubé, and this is Finance Fundamentals, the show where we learn how to stop working so hard for our money and learn how to make it work harder for you. This podcast is entirely based on my experiences and thoughts. I am not a financial advisor, and the thoughts and expressions you hear on this show are my own and are not reflective of my employers, past or present, nor my guests. I am not liable for investments that you make or strategies that you implement upon listening to my show. Now, back to the show. Welcome, friends, to the Business of Business. This is the first episode of the interview series, and I'm really excited to launch it. Thank you for joining me. This is going to be a lot different than my educational episodes. The purpose of this is for me to interview unique business owners and industry experts to provide some perspective and things that you can learn from. Hopefully some of this can be a little more lighthearted than some of my educational episodes. Please listen in, send me your thoughts, questions. Today, I have a a really exciting guest. When I decided to launch this podcast, I thought about the interview series, and there were about four or five companies that came to mind immediately, and this was one of them. As fellow Maine natives, they have done incredibly well for themselves. And I am so excited today to interview Jim Salakis from Cousins Maine Lobster. Jim grew up in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. He's the co-founder of Cousins Maine Lobster, which was a food truck that has now grown to over 50 units, including food trucks and fast casual restaurants. He graduated from the College of the Holy Cross in 2008, a degree in political science. In 2012, he and his cousin Sabin opened a single food truck in Los Angeles, and the rest is kind of history. He actually went on Shark Tank in 2012. He and his cousin struck a deal with Barbara Cochran, and they have now grown to be across the country and even in some international presence. They have really focused on family first, which I can appreciate. They have gone into Cooking Channel and Food Network episodes, and they have now have a show launching very soon that I hope that you all consider watching. Listen in to learn about that. He is an entrepreneur, an author, and an active member of Big Brothers and Big Sisters, and a proud father to his daughter, Olive. And he is very devoted to his wife, Maggie. So he is a family man who has done very well for himself. Really excited to have him. I hope that you can learn from this episode. And above all, I hope you are inspired to chase your craft. A real quick shout out to Esther, the assistant of Jim and Sabin. You have been a huge help to coordinate this, and I can't thank you enough. Thanks for listening in. Welcome to Finance Fundamentals. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining back in Finance Fundamentals podcast. Today, I have Jim Salakis. Did I say that right? Yeah, pretty close. Okay. From Cousins Maine Lobster. And I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this. I'm a original maniac myself. So it's pretty exciting when I get to connect with somebody else that's done real well from the state living in California. Obviously, a lot of people know them from Shark Tank to start the food truck that we see in many of our US cities across. There's some of them right here in Charlotte. So thank you for joining me. Really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited. Absolutely. All right. So season four, episode six, I did a little homework. All right, Barbara went in $55,000 for 15%. Before we get to that, let's talk about the first couple of months when you were in business prior to that. How did you establish this business beyond an idea? And how did you come up with pricing and start to think about scaling this? Or was it just a hobby that turned out to be something really great? 
Yeah, I mean, listen, these stories are always interesting, I think, for every entrepreneur or someone that starts a business because they're, they're all a little bit different, but they all have got uh, certain uh, you know, parallels throughout their uh, kind of early days. And for us, you know, I was living in Boston. My cousin Sabin was in Los Angeles. This was 2011. And we had this idea come. Uh, we actually had a dinner out in Los Angeles, got way too drunk, and every drink led to another kind of uh, down that rabbit hole of this crazy idea that is, hey... Uh, we grew up with this amazing Maine lobster. It was around our family and friends and crazy cousins. And um, so it was really about family happiness surrounded by lobster. So why don't we bring this lobster from our childhood, bring it out here to Los Angeles where we didn't think it was accessible or at that quality. I'll move out. Maybe, maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. It was going to be a passion project, right? We'll put a food truck on the road. It'll represent our home state where we're from. Bring the family together, something to be proud of, excited about. We'll see what happens. So for the next year, we really kind of worked behind the scenes. We, you know, I think your question is, how did it all come together? Hard work, time, dedication. How do we figure out pricing, supply chain, sourcing, distribution, the truck being built, the staff training? We knew none of that. Hard work, commitment, dedication, like anything else. Oftentimes we say just, you know, you make things happen, you give everything you got, and oftentimes that's enough. Most people aren't always going to get there. They're not always going to take the leap. So we believe that we did, and this kind of formalized over a year, year and a half. And on April 27th of 2012, uh, we launched our very first food truck in Los Angeles. I still remember coming out here. I was still living in Boston. I came out for the opening week, so excited. We're driving uh, behind the truck on the 405, so proud of the logo and the state of Maine and what we're about to go do. We showed up about an hour late to our event because of traffic. We had (laughs) 75 people in line. We had about 10 employees on the truck. Um, we now have two to three. Shows you where we were at then. Yeah. We didn't have a register. Forgot that. And we had never trained anyone to get the food out, out the uh, window. But long story short, Saban and I stood outside the truck. We spoke to people. They loved the quality of the food. We taught them about Maine and the sourcing and what they were eating and why it's so special to them and to us. And then it just kind of took off from there. You know, we, we ultimately had our truck on the road for about two and a half months prior to going on Shark Tank. Um, but it's just, it was line after line and we kind of felt you know, hey, maybe there's something here. So yes, I went back to Boston and Saban was working real estate in Los Angeles. But over those next few weeks, April, May, um, we said, hey, if we're going to make this work, if we're going to take a shot at this, you know, at our ages, we were a little bit younger, we weren't married, um, we had the opportunity to do it. That's, I think, where we said, hey, we got to take a leap. We need to cut the cord uh, if you want to go in and try and make this work. So I quit my medical device job in Boston, Saban quit his real estate job and Two cousins went all in on one food truck in Los Angeles. And literally, it was about two and a half months later that we aired on Shark Tank, um, where we did a deal with Barbara. Excuse me, we shot it in July. So we had two and a half months of business. Sure. Eighty-five, $80,000 a month in sales. And uh, that aired in October. And uh, we were off to the races. Wow. That, yeah, that's pretty incredible. I, I mean, I know coming from Maine, people in Maine are pretty proud of certain things. Lobster, blueberries, whoopie pie, beer. You know, there's certain things that you just are really proud of. And uh, you know, lobster is anytime I tell people I'm from Maine, they're always like, oh, lobster, you know, it's the first thing that comes to mind. So I, I totally see the connection and the passion and the passion project turning into a full-time career is, I mean, that's kind of the dream, right? And when that happened, when you went on the show, did you have Barbara in mind or would you have just been happy to get an investment at all? Yeah, it's a great question. We actually, you know, we were so new. It was in our infancy and to your point. It was a passion project. We didn't know that it would grow over time. We were just trying to give ourselves the best chances for it. We didn't know that we had something that might evolve into a a full-time business and job for us. But what we did know was that we saw people in line. We saw people smiling. Uh, We saw people enjoying it and trying to track it down and find it. 
So we tried to double down and make sure that the whole experience was going to be phenomenal from A to Z. So when we did go on a shark tank, they actually reached out to us. We said no to the show twice because like I said, we're in our infancy. We didn't have any history in business to do projections. We didn't have, we didn't know if somebody else was going to look at this and say, well, we should do a food truck, you know, and looking back on it wouldn't matter. You know, people can do whatever they want, but we eventually got a call from the executive producer saying, you guys will be making the biggest mistake in your lives if you don't come on. So by July, we were shooting it. And to your point, we did go in, actually quite literally focusing on Barbara. We had done our all kinds of research I could get into later, but we identified Barbara because she actually kind of seemed like what our, you know, a motherly figure, like we were so close to our mothers. Uh, she seemed like someone that was really hands-on, involved with her entrepreneurs, and she had experience in the food space. So without knowing everything, that's kind of what we were able to understand and derive. So we went in looking at Barbara, got an offer from uh, Robert, got a couple uh, snide remarks from uh, Damon, which we now laugh about. Uh, I'm Mr. <laughs> Wonderful, but those guys are amazing. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a really nice journey since. Yeah. I mean, since it's been coined as one of the biggest success stories on Shark Tank. So that's, that's great to have in your back pocket. It's since spun into something much larger, right? And I, the last I looked, you have, uh, is it 40 trucks in... 36 cities you're even in a few international locations now is that right yeah so we uh yeah i mean so that was 2012 we had one food truck we grew it corporately and then started franchising the business in about 2015 to date here we are in 2021 um yes we have 40 food trucks uh, there's 11 restaurants we had international uh, units in Taiwan, and then uh, we also developed and opened probably four months ago, uh, shipping nationwide from our e-commerce business online. So like in Omaha Steaks, but for lobster from Cousins Maine Lobster overnight. So it, it has grown. Uh, we have a, a, a footprint we are very proud of. And, you know, our franchisees, I really think, I, I honestly believe that what we're doing is special because of the people that make up our, our team whether it be our, our team members that are working on the trucks or it's our franchisees, we call them family members because it's that type of culture and fabric that we want to instill. So it's not about just pumping out units. It's about finding the right people in the right markets, making this something that everyone internally is excited about. And then that's felt you know, by customers because they get that awesome experience, the quality, the food, the cleanliness, the service, that hospitality that we grew up with in Maine, right? That down east. Yeah. yeah, so before... The truck started. I know from doing a little research, business was not your background. So how did you transfer your experience? You said medical device, correct? Yeah. You know, it's it's sales, it's still involved, but how do you go from taking that to running a full-fledged business that you eventually bring to the franchisee uh, experience, which I know I'm sure Barbara can definitely add some value there, but she wasn't there for every step. You you guys had to put in some work on your own. You know, how did you come up with the ideas? How did you grow? And I've seen the menu. You've got grilled cheese and different different options. How did that all come to fruition? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a great question because I think that a lot of people uh, in my shoes uh, back then or coming in the future, they have that background or that past that has nothing to do with business or what they're currently find themselves in for a profession. I was, I played college hockey. I was at a liberal arts school in Worcester, Massachusetts called Holy Cross. I was a political science major, which led to a career in medical device right out of college, which right there in and of itself made no sense. But it was sales. It made device I loved. It really taught me a lot, you know, in terms of preparation, in terms of learning your products, in terms of conversing with a whole variety of, of nurses, of scrub techs, of doctors. And what it really taught me was that I did have somewhat of my own autonomy. I didn't have someone breathing down my neck. So it gave me that independence to say, ooh, I kind of like this. I dig this. You know, some people aren't like that. And it's totally fine. But to me, it kind of gave that 
And then you learn when there was management involved or, you know, maybe the ownership. It allowed me, and I know my cousin Sabin, who was in real estate, to say the same thing. We want more autonomy. We want, we see the good things and the bad things that are what we thought our managers or owners were doing. And if we owned our own company, how would it look different? What kind of culture would we do? How would we treat our employees? How would we grow the business? Um, so you take the good, you kind of push out the bad, and you're trying to replace it with things that, that we wanted to do. We want to have our own company, run our own business. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know it was lobster. We didn't know it was a food truck. But what we found out when we were hanging out in 2011 is that, holy smokes, we are the same type of dudes. We have the same humor. We have the same energy, the same passion and work ethic and determination. So that was a fit, just like when we were growing up in Maine. And so I said, well, what's the idea? So as the lobster truck idea and Cousins Maine Lobster evolved, those pieces started fitting. But I think to your point, without a business background, with no MBA, how do you start a business and figure it all out? Hardest things I thought I had done in my life, which was division one college hockey and the rigors and labor of that, or getting thrown into medical devices, is nothing compared to starting your own business. It's everything. And you're in, you're in control and you're the one that needs to make sure that it's perfect or getting figured out. So the way we did that was, we often say humility. Maybe it's because we're from Maine, but we have humility and we know we didn't know everything. We didn't know a lot of stuff. So we would find those experts, those professionals through networks or our own family and friends to say, you know this, let me ask you questions. If you give me the time, let me learn and be a sponge and absorb it. And then I can apply it and manipulate it for our business. So yes, Barbara was huge, but not everyone has a shark from Shark Tank. Yeah. My father, um, accountant and CPA, like he taught us about what profit and losses were, which we had no idea. But when it came to insurances and hiring, staffing and health department, food trucks and catering and sales, all of these things in the new space, it was literally, again, finding people or resources and learning and asking questions to try and absorb it. Eventually you can become your own expert. Yeah, we have that in common. My dad's actually a CPA as well. So it definitely yeah, brings a lot of those life lessons. I, I like what you said about the hiring because you can choose the people you want to work with. And especially when you're looking at you know franchisees, uh, but even the people that are working on the trucks and you're growing the team, that all represents your brand. How did you develop what you wanted your brand to be? And how did you decide who you wanted to represent your brand? Yeah, that's, uh, and this is as, as basic as we are. And I think sometimes people overthink things, but we didn't. In the beginning, Sabin and I would be on the truck with our staff and our teams. And when we were at the window, you'd come up as a customer. We would treat you and we'd say to our staff, treat them like it's your mother. What would you do for your mom? You gonna rush her? You gonna tell, not tell her the information about the food? My mom wouldn't know what she was doing with our POS station or credit card. And maybe she doesn't know the food. So it's taking your time. It's treating them respect and uh, giving them information and a smile and how's your day. So like the simplicity of that, how do people feel when they're coming to give money to you and have a pretty small interaction at a window on a food truck? Same thing with the food. The food needs to be a 10 every time it goes out the window. Lots of groups just ah, look the other way. It's okay. So from food to service, to cleanliness, to the psychology of approaching a food truck, to just getting in touch with us, uh, making sure we're on the road, making sure we're reachable, that we have phones and emails, that we were responsive customer service. That's how the core of it started, which I think are, you know, the basics of how we grew up and how you treat people and how you treat businesses and why consumers will want to speak about you after they leave. Some people may want to speak about the food because it's so good. Other people are going to highlight the fact that the, the customer service was, was friendly and informative. The truck was clean. They feel really comfortable and confident with that. So it's always something for someone. So we try to execute on all kinds of aspects there. And when it comes to the franchisees, it's, it's the same thing. We're looking for phenomenal people in great markets. That seems simple. 
very hard to accomplish. You can have a great market with someone's going to take advantage. They're not going to uphold the standards of the brand. They're not seeing what I want to have a beer with on a Friday night. That's how we want to build our team. Like I want to socialize with you. I want to talk about your kids or your vacation. And of course there's the business side of it. And I want them to execute with our brand standards, no matter what day, no matter how many trucks, no matter if they're tired. Uh, that's a hard combination to find. Yeah, I, I know sometimes growing up in Maine, we kind of took it for granted. There's a lot of hardworking people up there. And, uh, you know, it's primarily a blue collar state. You got a lot of hardworking people. And I know when I first left, it's it, not everyone's like that. And you have to find the people that want to represent your brand for you. And, and that's an extension of you. And from what I've seen, we oftentimes rely on social media and things to, to tell our story, but that word of mouth is so powerful, you know, and in conjunction with social media, you know, I saw that Cardi B had posted something about your food truck and I'm sure that gets a lot of attention and that's the kind of attention that you want. You want the positive attention. And so, uh, you know, maintaining that brand has to be difficult. How do you go about, you know, touching in with your franchisees? Do you have regular checkpoints? Do you have somebody managing them by region? Or how do you decide to, to work that? Yeah. And before I even answer that, just a quick shout out to the, the hand that feeds us, which is the lobster industry, the fishermen back home, supply chain. I mean, that is, you're talking about, like you referenced blue collars and hard workers. Like I learned it from my dad and my mom, but no matter what Mainers did for profession, that's some of the toughest. And it truly is the, the hand that feeds us, right? With, without them and without the, the sourcing back home, we're nothing. Um, that's just the reality. So we try to execute on our end and they execute on theirs. But when you get out on the boat with them, uh, we take our franchisees out on the boat and you might get those beautiful summer days where it's like, hey, this is the best office in the world. There's also many days that we've gone out with franchisees and they get the real taste of the fog where you can't see five feet in front of you or the rain or the six foot swells. And that doesn't include the snow and the sleet and the freezing temps and hauling all that gear. That is uh, something we are always so appreciative of and always want to, we're not promoting for the hell of it. We're saying this is real and it's a, obviously the critical part of the chain. So yeah, Mainers and fishermen, it's a uh, thank you for all that, that they do. In terms of, uh, you know, I think you asked about how we go about, was it the franchise is that what you're asking? Yeah, how, how you go about managing and maintaining yeah. relationships. Yeah, so that, I mean, that to me is something that we, Again, I think early on day one, we made sure even with our corporate trucks, we went from one to two to three, we didn't want to grow too quickly. But if we want to do add that next unit to go do sales and, and get more market, we had to make sure that beforehand we had the, the system and the infrastructure with people, admin, uh, workers, and, and team members on our trucks to execute it. Because otherwise you're setting yourself up for failure. So with a franchise, we actually had a, a, our corporate team in place probably well before we uh, sold the franchisees in the first place. And as we grew and added more, we would look down the line and say, well, hey, if we're going to add X amount of trucks or restaurants in the given in the coming quarters, we made sure we hired team members that would be onboarded, trained, uh, and ready to rock when those units are up and running to continue to add to our corporate team. By that, I mean, whether it's vice presidents or vice president now, our brand and project managers, um, you know, our assistants, our compliance, our legal, and really like uh, what we'll call like morale team members, which is management of franchisees. Because you're right, there is that day-to-day -day contact. Saban and myself do it, uh, and then our entire team does it to stay in touch with them. Because that's, what's the, what's the pulse? What's the beats? Like what Barbara does to us. How's the business going? Here's why. That could be a friendly, amazing conversation in a day. What are the kids doing vacation, like I said? 
could be talking about sales, inventory, uh, booking out your truck, scheduling, staffing, issues you have, how do we get around them? How do we make you more focused on profit and losses? Whatever it may be, it needs attention. And that's the support that we're providing. And I, and I think that our franchisees feel that because you know we feel it back. Yeah, it's got to go both ways. Your corporate office, is that based out in Los Angeles? It is in Los Angeles. We spend a lot of time home in Maine too. We actually are almost 50-50 with um, our corporate team being uh, almost 50% in Maine, the other 50% in LA. Um, and that's just, you know, as it's grown, having a presence there has been helpful. And like anything else, you know, you want good talent, good people, good assets. So uh, especially during COVID, it's thought, hey, you don't need to be necessarily in our office together. We'd rather good people, good team members, even if it means communicating over Zoom or on the phone. Uh, so I guess that that leads into how has COVID impacted you, uh, if at all? Yeah, very thankful to say that our, our business has been strong during it. Of course, you know, when this all happened in early March a year ago or so, uh, I think everyone kind of shuddered and said, what the hell's happening? Um, and so we took a little dip then. But it's been strong since because I think there's a few things we can point to that we clearly didn't know when we set this business up. But, you know, grateful for the fact that it provides the food trucks obviously provide the mobility so we can go to markets and two places. And when events and festivals and farmers markets and all of these places of congregating people went away, um, we were able to use the brand and the, and the or recognizability of it to say, hey, we're going to be here. That could be a dead retail parking space, you know, where those stores had to be closed or it could be a dirt parking lot or it could be corner of Main Street, Main Street. And people would come out and they'd come out because they feel comfortable because it's outside, you're in the fresh air, you can socially distance easily. We put all the parameters of CDC in place so that people felt comfortable and good and safe and secure. We have a mobile app, um, which is like, you know, the Starbucks app. So you can place the order, not touch anything, just grab the food uh, upon your pickup. You can sit in your car if you want while you're waiting for your food to be done. So that certainly lended itself to provide people, you know, still high quality food that they like to treat themselves or celebrate with, especially during COVID when everything is kind of so depressing and scary and unknown still gives you an opportunity to get out and enjoy a Tuesday lunch or a weekend thing and celebrate your, Hey, we're with the kids again, you know, whatever it may be um, to really have a nice kind of psychological outlook on it. And the restaurants have been, obviously they're a little bit tougher in the sense of that they're restaurants, but by the nature of it, it's a lot of grab and go and delivery too. It's not 400 people sitting in on a Friday night where we need to do those covers. So the one other thing I would say about this is that our franchisees have been absolute workhorses. You know, this is their business and operations uh, as it is ours in Los Angeles and Sacramento and Maine where we own ours. And uh, we just buckled down. You know, you got to take some hits and some bumps and bruises, but got to find ways to let people know we're here and we're safe and and uh, make them confident that they can still appreciate the food and enjoy that out. Yeah. I mean, one thing I always like to remind people, you know, as I've been interviewing and, and we'll be releasing more episodes soon, business is not always, you know, roses. There's going to be tough times and, and not every small business succeeds. A lot of them do not succeed. Sometimes it's just a bad market, down market. Other times, you know, it's just you're not putting in the right work or putting your efforts in the right place. But I, I really do like that you have an office in Maine. That's really cool. Okay, so if we start talking about the the growth of the company, let's look going forward. 2021, 2022. Uh, we'll chat in a few minutes about a few other things that you have got going on. But as far as the trucks uh, and and restaurants, you know, do you have extending ex or expectations to extend beyond the cities that you're currently in? Maybe you want to expand to more markets and more international markets, even. 
Yeah. Uh, yes. The short answer is yes, we do. Um, we're, we're expecting fully to continue growing and it's twofold. The one aspect is the internal growth because our franchisees and those family members have done such great business and represented the brand so well in their markets had really strong success where they want more units, whether it be truck or restaurant, that's the unknown based on city market and their preferences. Um, and then there are all kinds of new markets that are really just you know, listen, we might be in 36 cities, but you know how many cities there are in the country? Yeah. So uh, it, it's that to me has been something where we continue to see this really a lot of inquiries, a lot of demand for us to be there. And we won't just do it willy nilly for the hell of it. We do it, as I mentioned, finding that right market and the right fit with a franchisee. Uh, but there are a lot of them that we have on our radar. Can't share them now because I don't want to give away. Yeah. <laughs> But yes, there will be new growth uh, into new cities and markets uh, domestically and some uh, add-on units uh, in our current cities. And internationally, yeah, I mean, we're certainly looking at, I don't know, we've had a lot of demand. It's just the question is, what, what does COVID do for transporting their goods to customs right now? You know, do we need to wait a little bit longer for that? Because that's obviously one of the bigger headaches. But yeah, it's uh, we, we continue to want to do that. And again, it's not just to sell them for the hell of it. It's because we have fun. This is a challenge. Yeah. We love building our team. Like this is what, you know, you wake up and you love doing what you're doing. And if we're so fortunate to do that, then meeting new people and introducing new people to our brand and new markets and consumers, that's a, a thing we're proud of. How did you decide on Taiwan? <laughs> Good question. So in the franchise model, a lot of times the inquiries come directly to us. Um, and to be perfectly frank with you, that's pretty much the majority of time versus maybe uh, some of our corporate decisions, we could identify a market and go put that truck or restaurant there. Um, so Taiwan, she reached out to us. Really phenomenal family and just so cool to see that that culture. And we've been there a few times, but they were big in American, bringing American brands to Taiwan. They did Tom Shoes, Quicksilver, two or three other brands in the food and retail space. And just phenomenal people, nice operators. And we did three units there, food truck, two restaurants. Unfortunately, with COVID, um, certainly has a, a bigger impact on, on them. And so they're kind of on a little bit of a hiatus at this point. I don't want to say a hiatus, but a pause uh, due, sure. due to what's going on. But really cool uh, in terms of cool doesn't do it justice, but we went over there uh, and just to see, like I said, one, to have your lobster roll on the other side of the world, taste the same, be the same, the bread, the lobster, but to be in that just environment with uh, the Taiwanese is just phenomenal and their food is great and they're, they're, it's just so much fun to see a different part of the world. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to think that it was just a one truck in LA and I saw, <laughs> yeah, you, you and your cousin had saved up, I think, was it $20,000 to start? And yeah. I mean, look, look now, you know, it, how did you decide on pricing? Uh, especially if we're talking about international versus domestic, you know, I'm sure that there, that comes at a premium. Sure. I mean, listen, one thing we always say to our staff, our team, and to customers, lobster is expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, we're going to the, I mean, you know this, obviously, but if, if not everyone does. So if you think we're going to the market or the grocery store and you're seeing beef or ground beef or turkey or chicken or salmon or any type of fish, almost always lobster is going to be the highest price per pound. So with that in mind, we pay a lot for it, which means we're going to have to, it's going to be more expensive to the consumer than a chicken sandwich, a salad, a hot dog, a burger. So as long as people understand that, we try to be very upfront with that and say, hey, we are not going to be the price of a hot dog or a sandwich. But we hope that we are very generous with food, that the quality is top shelf, that it's a 10, and that you love it and savor it and want to come back, whether it's in a week or once a month, however it fits your kind of appetite. So we figured out pricing and it was really based on 
one, obviously our cost, you know, you, you got to have our cost of goods is not, is far more than many other food services. So we need to do volume. We need to be efficient. When we started, we probably around $14 for a lobster roll. And that's because a couple other groups uh, had sold lobster rolls. And we did that because we wanted people to try our food. We felt so strongly about having the best product. Try my lobster roll. You guys decide. And over, oftentimes they would just say, yes, we're, we're now Cousins Main Lobster. Um, we're not going to go anywhere else because people are happy to pay for quality. And then we eventually said, listen, you know, we can't degrade our product and we can't, you know, take it off the chin and not make money for the business because it is just that. Like you said, it's a small business. There's a balancing act too, right? You got to make a living. You can't just give away food and run the business and, and make people happy. Like eventually, like you said, it's got to work. So we eventually went up over the course of these last nine years. We're at pretty much 17 to $18 for a roll. And now lobster prices have gone up to us. That's a reason that we've gone up. And also because we strongly believe that it's just like sushi. Like I would be concerned if I went to get a sushi, a tuna roll, and I paid four bucks for it. That would be weird to me. What's going on with the tuna? You know, yeah. I should be paying seven to 10 bucks for a, 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 you know, a cut roll. So that's kind of how we developed it. Each market is a little bit different, but ultimately I think it is an educational thing where customers, as long as we can show them that supply chain, the transport, the effort, that labor back in Maine to get the product, to cook the product, to get it to our cities, have it taste phenomenal. Like you were back in Maine, people appreciate that and understand, understand the cost. Yeah. And for those that may not know, lobster cannot be shipped dead you know it's it needs to be a live uh, lobster so you know if you buy it at the market it's it's going to be out of the tank and so that that comes at a, at a cost as well so it is a, a costly product but it is uh, you know i've seen the truck here actually in my neighborhood i think it was here three weeks ago downloaded the app and i went and it, you know it, it it comes at a cost but if you want the freshest lobster which trust me we don't get much of in north carolina mm-hmm. <laughs> um it's it's kind of you know it's it comes with the territory but trust me there was a line people were busy and they were there so yeah absolutely so uh, let's uh let's talk a little bit about giving back so i saw that you started a charity cousins for a cause and and i'd love to hear about that because one thing that i i think that a lot of people need to keep in mind is as you scale and grow and find that success it's important to to look to enrich the people in your community and in your neighborhoods and and the people that need that assistance that may not have the resources that you do yeah and i appreciate you asking i think that the idea of charity or giving back or doing something good, whatever that means to you as an owner operator, it doesn't need to be given everything. And it doesn't need to be when your business is so established. I still remember a specific night. It was, I mean, it was, I was living in my first place in LA. So it was about two years, three years into business, maybe. Trust me, the business wasn't booming. You know what I mean? It was, it was grind time. We were in the trenches and, you know, I was probably eating saltine crackers for dinner. So Keep that in mind because what I, the point of me sharing that is saying that didn't stop us from saying, well, how can we do something good? How can we give back? The idea for our business, we're kind of thinking of, I think it was like Ellen or see these other shows, they show up at your door, they knock and there's a big check for you. And it's like <laughs> happiness that you see on people's face is what we wanted to create. Now we don't have a $50,000 check to give, but what we had was the idea of saying, well, if we could come up with something like Cousins Care or Cousins for a Cause in some way, shape or form, we could go take the food truck to an event and give some percentage of sales back because if we're lucky to go to an event where they have a lot of people, 
and we can do sales because of that, then we can give some percent back. And maybe it's a small amount, but it's something. What we find is that those groups never got anything back. So even if it was 100, 150, or some odd dollars, it would go a long way. Nonprofit, community, whatever it may be. And Cousins for a Cause eventually developed a little bit into where we'd partner with Big Brothers Big Sisters because my cousin Sabin was a big for a long time. He was also little back in Maine. And I became a big probably five or six years ago as well. And that was just another avenue to say, hey, we give our time to these littles because they deserve it. And, you know, it just shows you how lucky we are. But then we'd start giving, uh, obviously, proceeds back to Big Brothers Big Sisters as well to help uh, the Los Angeles and other chapters throughout the country. So it didn't necessarily mean one avenue versus another. It was just the idea of saying, hey, when there is an opportunity to give back, to do something, to support a team, to sponsor these uh, Little League teams out here, whatever it may be, it's a start. And I think yeah. that's a broken entrepreneur. As your business grows, you can have more means to give back. Cool. But if you're doing it for the right reasons, it's appreciated by all and it will inevitably grow. Yeah, I don't remember the statistic, but there is some statistic I read recently that companies that give back tend to be more successful by a specific percentage just because the employees are happier, the people are happier, and people recognize you in the community as doing good. So they're more likely to be loyal customers and kind of create that repeat business you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, listen, that's and that's the core of our business, even with or without charities are saying, hey, we're a family-owned business. Yes, it's franchise, but we're family-owned and the owners in your cities are family-owned and they are from there and they've grown up there. And it's not this big corporate chain. And for that reason, we want to feel small because we are small and we want customers to feel good about getting behind something, whether that's the entrepreneurial vision, whether that's the give back, whether it's the quality of the food, about the hustle, the grind, trying to make it. People can get behind that type of stuff. I think it's important. Absolutely. All right. So I told a couple of people I was interviewing you, not many. I'm trying to keep that to the chest for now. But as far as growing and deciding to get a brick and mortar, what made that decision? Was that to, to plant some roots and have a couple of locations that people could find you at all times and just a variety of, of options for your consumers? Yeah, so we did our own corporate restaurant in 2015 in West Hollywood is when we opened. And the reason that we did that, it's 2016, I think it was 15 though. And the reason we did that is because we were kind of looking ahead in the future. We had just started franchising the trucks. There were you know, the food truck industry was growing and has continued to grow, which is phenomenal. Breaking down barriers, you know, they're, they're becoming more food truck friendly cities and markets and especially with COVID that's helped. But then we also knew there was this other side of the business that is people that, meaning customers that don't want to track the truck, they don't want to stand in line, they don't want to drive all over LA to find it, they want a given location, address and hours. And then there's an operator side of it where it's uh, some situation that the owners are uh, happier because it's in their own four walls, it's not moving. They are formerly restaurateurs or currently restaurateurs in the other uh, space. And I think that type of opportunity would allow us to kind of prove the flagship restaurant like we did with the trucks in 2012. That would allow franchisees in the future to diversify, have kind of their portfolio of cousins' trucks or restaurants. And the last point is that each market could almost dictate certain things, right? Like San Diego... Not the best food truck market because you can't get to the beach, can't get to the gas lamp but for a little restaurant or some beach cities, same type of thing. Or where it's really cold. Originally, we were kind of thinking maybe it's best for a restaurant where there's heat and AC in the summer versus, uh, you know, just having a truck that might not do as well in the winter. So those were kind of the thoughts behind it. And at the end of the day, now, as we have grown and our franchisees profile have evolved even more, it's proven to us that, yes, there are some people in their in their past that are just retail, restaurant-driven people, yep. and there are others that are truck, and they're coming in the middle. Yeah, and, and I mean, variety of customers, some are going to find you on foot traffic, brick and mortar, others yeah. uh, just happen upon the truck, and I like the variety. Okay, so if we start talking about 
Shark Tank, I want to know what happens when the show ends. You know, you clap your hands, you get a hug from Barbara, you walk yep. out. Now what? You know, I, I know I've watched the show before and some of the contracts don't end up panning out, but clearly yours did. You know, what happens when the show ends? So we were in there for a little more than an hour. There's no cutting or editing or redoing. And you're kind of sitting there, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an on-take. And you do your pitch is the kind of interrog- interrogation. We did do a deal, as you said, with Barbara. The last thing pretty much the viewer sees is this hug that we have. And then you're kind of post-interview, you know, what do you think? Whatever. But then the reality is you step out of this massive warehouse on the Sony lot, all these other warehouses and, and uh, that, that are shooting these big shows. The sun's on you and you're like, 2012, like, what the hell did we just do? You know, you gave a 15% of your company. Was this right? Was it wrong? You go back in the green room. They actually have a psychologist come and see you and make sure that you're good. Because we said before, like, well, we're not going to need this. You know, we, we know what we're doing. It's our business. But it went well for us. We did a deal. It was ultimately positive and we were excited. But still found ourselves going, huh, was this the right deal? Was it the right percent? We're so new. Should we have done this at all? So that's one thing. And then you think about these shows where they just rip people apart and go, you know, people would fess up saying they say they put their life savings into it. They remortgage their home. They've been working on this for nine years. They're a million dollars into it, whatever it may be. And then they go, your idea is terrible. This is brutal. You're about, I don't want to invest in you. That type of thing then proves us like these could be some swinging emotions for sure. So that is a real thing. And I think a lot of the shows do that. Make sure that you're you're okay and kind of see what you went through. But then ultimately what happens is there is a due diligence period that probably lasts about a month, month and a half, depending on your kind of cleanliness of your business to say, hey, yes, everything is as you said. You're not trying to take her for a run or vice versa. Um, we signed our deal. It actually was the same as it was on TV. Sometimes they change. We were off to the races, just had a lot of conversations and with Barbara and still do. Excellent. Yeah, that's really cool. So gotten into a little bit of the entertainment industry. I seen that, uh, what was it called? The Great Food Truck Race. You also did a few other things, uh, Seaside Snacks and Shack and, and Food Network, Cooking Channel, a lot in that space. How did that come to fruition? So, you know, I think you'll see... You, People, you go on Shark Tank or any reality show, people think you're over uh, an overnight success, which is clearly not the yeah. truth. Um, they also think that you're going to be in the limelight forever, which is not the truth. I mean, I, I've still been watching Shark Tank since then. And there's a lot of groups I don't remember six months later, or no matter what it is. You're, you know, So just because it's a flash in the pan doesn't mean that it, it proves anything or gets you any real sustainable marketing and recognizability. So Saban and I really focused on saying we need to stay in the spotlight, not for ego, but we want to continue to show our brand and let people know we exist, right? It's internal marketing. We could do organically. So we would try to stay in that space of not just live off the heels of the Shark Tank and a follow-up on a Shark Tank, but to keep sharing our stories and what's new. And that, to your point, led to the Today Show, like Good Morning America, Queen Latifah, Kelly Clarkson, uh, Katie Couric. I mean, all of those shows, Entrepreneur Magazine. So there's print and there's TV, Maria Bartiromo, finance, daytime, nighttime shows, which is a huge honor and excitement for us to be able to do what I'm doing with you and share our story and our business and our brand over the course of the years. So that's kind of how that developed. And then over time, everyone said, wow, Jim, you're super funny. You should do more on TV and Saban, you're terrible, but come along with Jim. <laughs> um, they, they, we do the podcast and people are like, hey, this is, you guys are fun and, and you're, you know, you can speak about food and you're easy to uh, relate to. Like Mark Cuban, hard to relate to. Most people don't think, oh, I can wake up tomorrow and be a billionaire, but they can see us at our food truck in Venice and go, you guys did this? You'd say, oh, wow, I want to do this too. Or how do I do it? It, it gives them like, uh, my feeling is that as an entrepreneur or someone starting a business, it gives them some real 
obvious kind of visual and true experience to say, well, I can do this too. Yeah. And so that evolved into some of the TV stuff where, you know, you go on the, the food network or the cooking channel uh, or any of these shows and say, Hey, this is how we did it. You guys can do it too. And it's uh, a fun thing to kind of create that opportunity for others and, and share our story as well. Yeah. And, and so I'd love to talk about the, the newest release coming out. So it's actually going to be releasing. We're airing this uh, next week, so it'll be a little after. But you have a new show coming out. You want to tell everyone about that? That is coming out this Sunday, which is, is that the 11th, I believe. Every Sunday, 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific. Yeah, so it's uh, exactly. So it's on the Food Network. Uh, it is our very first show together. My cousin and myself, is, uh, the show is called Food Truck Rehab. And it's, it's something new and fresh and different for the Food Network. And it's a little bit different in the way that it's shot. But ultimately, it is taking owners and operators of food trucks that had struggled, maybe not got off the ground, maybe did, but then failed a little bit out of the gates. Their truck could be in a parking lot unused for the last 6, 10, 12 months. So we really want to go in there and revive that business, whether it be the truck itself, the equipment, the menu, of course, the food, the whole storytelling, and give some life to that. And in doing so, balancing that with what is critical in our business, which is a family dynamic. A lot of these owners and operators are actually family members. So that's the other piece is like the family side of it, like especially in food truck space, tight little spaces. So we're really working with showing kind of the best ways that we can with, with food in the truck, as well as obviously the family dynamic and making those two work in harmony so that so the business can be successful. So I'm very excited about it. You're right. It is Sunday night. It'll be after this, this airs. Um, but if you DVR'd it, be sure to go check it out and obviously appreciate everyone watching. Yeah. And uh, Esther actually sent me the press release and you know, pretty, pretty cool uh, first episode. I think that's an interesting dynamic, son-in-law, yeah. father-in-law working together. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a dicey one. <laughs> so, don't don't envy those conversations <laughs> right. yeah uh, so this is a part of my show where i like to move into a segment called bullish or bearish bullish means you're really positive on something thumbs up you think it's great bearish means hey look i'm not feeling so hot on this don't have the best feelings you can be neutral as well let's go with movie theaters 2021 what are bearish. your thoughts yeah do you think i go, I go bearish, but that's just i mean listen that's me personally i understand people are so excited to get back out there one of the places I probably wouldn't start with is uh, in a movie theater where you can't see the cleanliness of things anyways when yeah. it's dark and kind of in that enclosed space. Yeah, I, I think that uh, there is some nostalgia factor, but it might take people a little while to get out of that. And I mean, I know within 10 miles of me, there's probably 20 movie theaters. So there's there's probably a little saturation there. I'll, I'll probably go to get popcorn for my wife because she loves the popcorn from the movie theaters. Oh, it's the, the best, it's the best part. <laughs> go with streaming services. Do you think it's getting saturated? Yeah, so I guess I'm going... Am I going bullish on this one? Is that would I don't know which one would say. So, I think it's getting saturated. You're 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 bullish on the saturation. So are you yeah. bearish on streaming as a as a whole? I guess. Yeah, you know, obviously, probably like everybody else, we became binge watching on whatever the streaming device is during COVID. And for us, originally it was Netflix. I'm not a huge streaming guy, but then you know, you start watching whatever you can. And then it was Amazon, and then it was Peacock, and then it was Hulu, and then it's like all these other little different things. And of course, within there, there's a cluster of shows. Good on everybody for doing it. But yeah, I do think that probably that move probably a lot from networking cable to that space was probably so hot in uh, recent years that uh, like anything else like people jumping in the food truck industry at some point who knows quality or, or something might take a shot yeah and i think uh you know if you look at disney you know they're, they're really taking some market pull from the others they're now releasing movies directly there and right. that's going to change the 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 whole dynamic of of everything and then 
you know, some of them had first mover advantage. Obviously, Netflix is kind of what you think of. But look, you know, there's Amazon and Hulu and Discovery has their own and there's a lot. And uh, I know in the beginning, the idea was to kind of break away from cable. But if you kind of sign up for all of these and add that price together, you're probably (laughs) right about what your cable bill was. So, so California-based, I got to ask you what you think about Tesla. Well, this is a tricky one. I've never owned a Tesla. I've never uh, I've driven in Teslas. I mean, it's super quiet to me. This is just personal again. Uh, while they look super sleek, and I do, I do love the looks of them, they're too sterile inside for me. And I know that comes with a lot of benefits of, obviously, all the, the, the pros that they bring. Uh, they were just a little too, uh, too sterile for me inside, too, too, too bare. But I know a lot of people that love them, so probably neutral. I've actually never sat in one. So I, I can't, can't speak. I've seen them, never been in one. I, I think that they had first mover advantage, again, when it comes to the electronic cars. It, there's a lot of other players coming to the market. Volkswagen's got some really big push in, in Sweden and parts of Scandinavia. So I, I think there's going to be others that come into the play. Tesla does other things that we don't hear about as often. I know they got a bunch of solar panels and different, different facets mm-hmm. of their business. Obviously, they're pretty successful, but I, I don't know we look at it a decade from today we could be saying i remember that company so yeah, yeah I, I, maybe not maybe not but i don't want to make that call so let's let's talk about tourism as far as the airline industry what are your thoughts when it comes to that you know listen when it comes to i'm the first guy that wants to travel asap because in my life after college it kind of was work 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 i never traveled or saw the world until the last probably year before covid with my wife we did italy and Thailand and uh, Greece. And I'm like, holy smokes, why wasn't I doing this for the previous 10 years? So I would love to be going back to places and seeing other parts of the world or the country. But I would imagine that's a little bit, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle here too, because I can see people taking their time and being hesitant and more, more kind of conservative about making sure the data is coming back from vaccines and how things are actually going with the numbers. And then I can see a huge part of the population saying enough is enough. I'm vaccinated. I'm good. Let's go. And they're going to be so excited, whether it's music festivals or hopping on a plane to go uh, wherever, internationally or domestically. So I, I'm, you know, I flew recently to Maine a couple months ago, and I actually felt fine on the plane. I did my own cleaning and everything, and there weren't many people. But when it's full again, you know, who knows how the how the brain feels. Yeah, I've flown twice this month. I had not flown for over a year, which is really unusual. But I flew to Maine one time, and then I actually was just in Utah last week doing some skiing. And when I got out there, I could not believe how packed the airports were. And I had flown just a few weeks prior and gone to Maine. It really wasn't that busy. But I think people are getting vaccinated. They're feeling more optimistic. And it, like you say, some people are saying, Hey, look, enough is enough. I gotta, I gotta get out there and, and do something. And I, I don't think maybe we'll hit those 2019 numbers for a couple of years, but it, it's coming back. Okay. So let's move on from that. I, I do want to hear your thoughts. If uh, an entrepreneur or a young entrepreneur wants to start a company, a business, you know, what are your, your tips for them and things to think about as they scale, grow, and, and maybe they had those initial frustrations of not hitting the numbers they want and not having that immediate success, but sticking with it. But, but beyond that, what, what are the tips that you could give? Yeah, well, I do think that is real. Like what I was saying about Cuban is that while he's hard to relate to, because whole and whole, I mean, how do you get to a billion dollars? Yeah. Uh, but the reality is he didn't get there overnight either. He didn't just come up with an idea and wake up the next morning and go, boom. We didn't just go on Shark Tank with the next morning and say, oh, you, you, you got a business that's uh, grown in size. Like it was 
We talk about the headaches, the issues, the scary points, the times you think the business was not going to last, it was going to close, you're going to be on dateline for some crazy story of some other vendors and manufacturers. I mean, we've been through it, been through a lot of it. So it wasn't uh, always roses, like you say. I think the pieces that are most important to get you through those times, to get you over the hump, over the threshold, and on to improving your business um, are a few things. Number one for me is always preparation. My hockey coach at Exeter used to say to us, say, if you're prepared, you have nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. And while that's a little bit of a simplification, it applies to everything. An interview, studying for a test, going for a job interview, starting a business, learning how to figure out your finances when you have no background in business, whatever it may be. If you prepare for it, there shouldn't, you've done all you can. There shouldn't be anything to worry about. We prepared over and over and over again for Shark Tank, like, they were blue in the face. The things that we did, people would be like, why are you doing this? But we then felt so literally prepared when we were there under the spotlights to answer questions, to be calm and rational, know all the information, know questions that were coming before us, know what they did as students in high school so you could communicate with them. I think that gave us a really good chance to present Cousins Maine Lobster well and to get a deal. So we apply that to everything we do. That's vetting a new franchisee, a discovery day, opening a new market, our own staff and teams. So as an entrepreneur, be prepared, be overly prepared, and that will help you work through tough times or make you even more successful when times are good. Certainly, I said earlier, humility. You know, if you got an ego and you're too cocky and you think you're just going to run through something, like you're probably going to be sorely mistaken. So we always say we're smart enough to know we don't know everything. And that means that we ask a lot of questions. Some people are afraid to ask questions. We're the opposite. We're the guys that probably annoy everyone in middle school and high school raising their hand at the end of class. But we need to learn these things because you're just helping your business get better and stronger and you get smarter. And then the third thing I'd say is, is to be fearless. At some point in the beginning and then in the middle and throughout the process, you need to be fearless to, like we did, to take the leap, jump all in. A lot of people come to us and go, well, I was going to do that. I was going to do that. Well, yeah, but you didn't. And that's okay. But rather than kind of hanging on to that, like make a decision, take a leap, be fearless. And then when you're starting your business, you're in it, you still got to make decisions that way. Because if you're too hesitant or always on eggshells, I believe that you're not going to set yourself up for the most success. So those are some kind of little ingredients, I guess I would give uh, for people to keep in mind when they start their own business. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think that it's important to keep in mind You've got the the big picture, but it doesn't happen overnight. And, you know, you've had some immense success and I I really congratulate you on that. Very humbled and happy that you came on the podcast. Actually, when I launched it, you were one of the first companies that I thought of, Maine Connection. Uh, And and it's great to have you on. I will put all of Cousins Maine Lobster information in the description, Instagram, social and, and website. Check out their website, see if they have a truck in your city or maybe one coming soon. And also check out Food Truck Rehab on Sunday evening at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific. Jim, thank you very much. Really appreciate you coming on. Dustin, thank you, man. It's a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And uh, glad for the main connection and congrats to you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was a great first interview and I hope that everyone really enjoyed it. Check back next week for a new episode on Tuesday and another interview on Thursday. Together we'll own that road to financial freedom. I'm glad you're here joining me for it. I want to hear from you. Have a topic you'd like discussed? A suggestion? You can contact me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, email, and more. Check out the description for my link tree. I look forward to hearing from you. The show is written and edited by me. Produced and edited by Daniel Rue. A lot of work goes into these episodes, and we really hope you enjoyed them.